Good evening, everybody. This is Dr. Alan Fine, the podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. And today we have a real privilege of speaking to Dr. Haley Gershengorn, who is the lead author on a series of articles dealing with one of the great challenges that all of us who deal with pulmonary and critical care, both or either, are faced with, and that's how to manage the changes that need to be done in the intensive care unit. Some of this gets back to how do we make our intensive care units more efficient uh, because of all the resources that are uh, devoted to critical care, but also how do we make our intensive care units more humane? How do we communicate better? So this is a a very broad topic, and recently it was approached in a series of three articles published in the annals. It's Dr. Gershengorn, Dr. Coker, and Dr. Factor from Albert Einstein College of Medicine, University of Southern California, and the University of Arizona. And I want to welcome Dr. Gershengorn here with us today. Haley, let me ask you, what do you think in in kind of a broad brush way are the big problems that intensive care units face today? And, you know, taking into account some of the enormous changes that will have to take place as part of uh, our reorganization of our health care system. Sure. Thanks so much, Dr. Fine, for uh, asking me to come and talk about this topic, obviously one of, of interest to me. And I think, obviously, you start with the most difficult, probably, question to define, which is sort of why, why this, why now, and why the ICU? I think, for me anyway, on a very basic level, care in the ICU, our main goal will always be, whether we see it as a problem or just the challenge that we face, providing the most high-quality, safe, efficient care we can in a complex environment, the way that we know the ICU is becoming more and more over time. And then I think, secondly, our biggest challenge is to try to figure out how to position our personnel to address that primary goal of providing high-quality care and also how to make them sort of advocates for improving processes to make that happen. And obviously, as you say, with the new focus, I guess, on reporting quality metrics, not so new maybe, but, but higher focus, and on the importance, I think, with a recognition that resources are limited, as we've always known, to make sure that care is as efficiently and as safely delivered as possible is is a big challenge for for any of us practicing in the ICU or managing a unit as that. And so we sort of see it as, I think, in terms of getting to that first goal of delivering high quality and safe, efficient care is sort of there are multiple areas you have to be able to address, and we try to provide some tools in this series to do that. And so we think about sort of identifying areas where you may not be performing as well as you might like, be it compared to a national benchmark or just your own goals for what your unit should be able to accomplish. And we give you I think some strategies to think about how to compare and how to evaluate your performance relative to your peers. We think about kind of the idea that once you have those areas identified potentially, to figure out where amongst them is going to be the one that's going to get you the highest bang for your buck, the highest impact by trying to improve it. And and we think a little bit about how to choose which of those we should prioritize. I think importantly, then how to figure out what your problems in that area might be, where your breakdowns might occur. And we talk a little bit in our, our series, as you mentioned, about root cause analysis and failure uh, mode and effects analysis to try to figure out how you would tackle that.
that. We talk a little bit about once you find that, how to improve processes so with ideas like checklists and Six Sigma and lean thinking to try once you've identified where there might be errors or things you would prefer were, were better performed to try to improve upon that. And then finally, to really follow up on how you're doing, both how to track your quality, your improvement, and also how to feed it back potentially to your frontline staff who are really the people that are working hard to do this. And then I think with that last bit in mind about the frontline staff, I think, you know, we dedicate a whole third of this series, I suppose, to trying to figure out how to create a culture of change. And I think for me, and I, and I believe for my co-authors as well, that's really understanding how to create a culture to champion change in your environment using all the disciplines that are involved. And we know the ICU is a really multidisciplinary place. And so I think for us, that's involving folks early, frontline folks getting their buy-in because they've been involved and helping them to understand how this is an important thing for them to do through education about the topics that they're approaching, but also through incentivizing them to do so. So we speak a little bit about that. So to me, I guess the big challenges to answer your question are really to help us provide really high-quality, safe, efficient care in a complex environment and how to position our personnel to do that in the most effective way possible. Now, the title of the article is Management Strategies to Affect Change in the ICU, Lessons from the World of Business. Why did you feel that the business world could provide lessons to the medical world? Sometimes these are kind of viewed as two distinct universes. So what do you think the business world can teach physicians and our multidisciplinary teams? It really isn't only physicians. It's really our team, our health system. What can they tell us? Yeah, I think it's, you know, we struggled a little bit with the title because of that specific issue that you raised. I think that sometimes we see these two ways of thinking about things, sort of a business-mindedness or a strategy, and sort of what we do in healthcare is often at odds with one another. And I, I completely understand the perspective there. I think for us, there really are some, some many more similarities that are often recognized that I think allow us to look at this sort of world of business and see what they've been able to accomplish. Not that, that we don't have more to feed back to them similarly, but that they might have some skills or some strategies that we haven't thought to use because we've always viewed ourselves as divergent. And so I think when I think about it, I focus on these things as being much more similar rather than different. And so specifically, the goal in business, I think, has always been to create or deliver a high-quality product. And in the world of medicine, that's healthcare, but that's not necessarily so different as delivering a product in an automotive industry or something like this. And then I think most importantly, not only delivering a high-quality product, but delivering it efficiently and in a financially viable manner. And we know that financially viable is going to be different for a for-profit business than it likely is for a not-for-profit hospital. But I think, you know, all of us in healthcare have come to accept that one of the important things we must think about is cost-effectiveness of some of the things that we do, given how limited many of our resources are, especially as we acquire more and more capabilities to do more and more things. And while, therefore, the what will be an acceptable threshold, I think, for what is the expected cost associated with an expected investment in the world of health care versus in a for-profit business environment, I think the goal to optimize the outcome associated with any financial investment we make is actually a very similar strategy. And I think, therefore, we can use some of the techniques that folks have used in a business world to try to teach us how to do that because they've been focused really on that, I think, longer than we have, this understanding that cost has to factor in. It's not the most important thing necessarily, but by the definition of things being limited needs to be a, a part of what our discussions are. I was intrigued by your use of uh, high-quality goals. How is ICU leadership to decide what a 
quality goal is? How do, how do we do that? There are so many competing pressures on uh, healthcare systems, let alone intensive care units. So uh, how do you pick those goals? I think that's tough. It's how to pick the goals and how to approach them and, and who the best folks are to do that. And I mean, I guess the easiest way to, or the first step of things to look at are, for better or worse, there are external pressures upon us, be they from regulatory agencies or from the public, to give some sense of what our quality is in certain areas, be that central line infections or for our surgical patients, infections following operations. And so I think that's a really easy place to start is the goals that are sort of being dictated to us. I think what might be a harder thing even to answer, even once you select one of the projects that you need to focus on, is sort of what technique to use and what's the best fit for this priority initiative. How do you study it best? How do you present the data best? And I think, unfortunately, as, as we could probably say for anything, how to choose which of those techniques to use is going to be probably unit dependent and personnel dependent and is going to fall a lot on the leader to understand his or her personnel best. Are they folks that are really going to want to get involved in an iterative process like Lean or Six Sigma might allow? Would they be more or less interested in external review like you could do with a root cause analysis or, or an FEMA kind of analysis? And so I think if we were to look at just a really simple example and say, you know, we know what initiative we want to look at, be it central line associated bloodstream infections, and we want to see how our unit is doing over time. We've put an initiative in place, we've analyzed it in a way, and now we have to decide, let's say, between how our multiple different ways to present and feedback to our frontline staff how they're doing. I think that would even be a really focused and simple question, and even that one's tough. And so, you know, we provide a, a couple of examples that include a bunch of graphs and charts that one might use and have been used successfully in other areas, and then scorecards and dashboards, which I think are more and more common these days in healthcare anyhow. And I sort of see choosing amongst those as, you know, if you've got a simple, single problem that you're looking at, how are we doing central line infections over time? A simple chart may be the best approach. But if you're really looking kind of at a more broad sense of how is your unit operating on multiple facets, be it central line infections, moving people out of the ICU more quickly, mortality, things like this, it might be necessary to put together a more complicated presentation structure like a scorecard or a dashboard. And we try to give some information to folks about how they might go about doing that and what the thinking is behind using those. So, you know, I've uh, been involved with some of these over the years, but maybe you can tell our listeners what is Six Sigma and what is a lean strategy? Maybe give an example of how you might apply it. Sure, of course. I think those are two of the ones that are have become much more pervasively used in healthcare, and probably for good reason. I see them as very similar in, in many ways, and then I think they have some distinct differences. And so I think both of them can be viewed as sort of structured approaches to study and analyze and understand a process that's happening in your unit or elsewhere, and then ultimately to use the data that you acquire from this detailed and structured analysis of the current process to figure out how to optimize it best. And I think Six Sigma sort of focuses their areas of optimization on something they term defects per million opportunities, and that's sort of taken from the world of industry where products were being produced with a certain error rate, and the goal is to sort of identify processes which can potentially be optimized to minimize the chance of these errors. And sort of similarly, but slightly different, lean thinking sort of focuses more on minimizing what they consider non-value-added steps, or what is termed more colloquially waste, with the idea that every process has in it essential steps that help the process occur in the way it needs to, but there's probably delay in any process or potentially negative steps that are actually detracting from the overall outcome. And so I think as you've alluded to, many of these strategies exist 
many people have seen some of them, and, and they've really been studied in a variety of different settings. I personally think there's a great set of examples published in two separate papers a couple of years ago by a gentleman named Atul Vats and his colleagues out of Atlanta, where they looked at how to apply lean thinking in their pediatric intensive care unit. And we comment a little bit about this in our series, but I think the papers themselves do much more justice to it. And what they sort of set out to do was using lean methodology, again, that identification process to find steps that are potentially not helpful in the process they're studying. They wanted to figure out how to optimize and make more efficient their morning rounding period. And so they had data collectors sit and watch over 100 interactions of the clinicians and the patients in terms of their time spent on daily rounds. And they categorized every activity that the physicians and multidisciplinary team underwent during that period. And they categorized activities as one of three, either value-added activities that were essential to the rounding process, for instance, making a care plan about what medication to give a patient, value-added processes that were not essential to rounding. So, for example, teaching of the residents, which they obviously thought added value to the experience and were necessary for the mission of the institution, but were not necessarily necessary on rounds. And then finally, identifying processes that they decided were not value-add. And so we can sort of think of those as walking from the one bed in the one side of the ICU over to the other bed on the other side for unclear reasons and sort of wasting time and walking around. And after they did this, they decided with this information to change their process. And so they streamlined the order in which they went through patients to try to remove some of this non-value-add time. And they moved things like teaching of residents and other things of that ilk that were obviously important and value-added steps but need not occur on rounds to later in the day. And by making that simple adjustment, they were able to significantly decrease their time rounding by about a quarter of the time. Now, I mean, there's been a lot written about checklists and very well-known, I guess, bestseller, the Checklist Manifesto by uh, Gawande. How do you think checklists might help us? Or do you think that's kind of too simple for uh, the 21st century healthcare provider? I think actually part of its success probably is its simplicity, frankly, especially for us in the ICU where things are often complex. It probably doesn't work for everything, but I, I think, you know, as we all can kind of look to, as you mentioned, Dr. Gawande's sort of book on the topic, but then also I think you're probably, or other folks have seen as well, Peter Pronofost's initial paper in the New England Journal several years ago looking at sort of the use of checklists in Michigan in this Keystone ICU project to try to improve our adherence with evidence-based practices to minimize bloodstream infections. And that's sort of, I think, what has kicked off the real focus in the ICU setting of the use of checklists. And for those who are not as familiar with that project, I suppose, let me just quickly say that it was a combination of the use of a checklist that asked people and and forced people to adhere to five evidence-based practices, but not only the checklist, but education about the importance of these practices. And then also frequent feedback to folks about how they were doing in their adherence with that. And I think that whole combination of interventions, the checklist and the supporting education and feedback were what led to their significant and and markedly sustained reduction in bloodstream infections that they were able to see. I think, as you say, that it may be or maybe you allude to, it may be too simple to say checklists will fix everything. I worry a little bit, and I think we try to address this a little bit in our series, that we can make a checklist for everything, but we have to be careful, I think, about how we make a checklist. Let's make sure that it's got relevant steps in it that people really should be adhering to and not things that are going to turn into these non-value-added type steps that Lean asks us to think about. And also to try to focus the importance of making it succinct, because I think many of us who've experienced the use of these checklists have found that it's very easy to incorporate everything, but it makes it very hard to get through your activities if you're busy going through a very complicated and very detailed checklist. And so I think 
one of the real successes probably of Dr. Pronovo's work and that of subsequent many others has been sort of the brevity and the focus of the checklist they use. Finally, I think there's an interesting study. It was a single center study, but it has, I think, very interesting implications for us published by Curtis Weiss and his group out of Chicago looking at an academic medical ICU showing actually that for them at least it was not just the implementation of a checklist that changed outcomes and processes. In fact, compared to a time when they hadn't had the checklist, they didn't see market improvements in their, what they were looking at, rounding process with the use of a checklist. What they saw, in fact, was that when you added to a checklist a human being whose sole responsibility it was to prompt clinicians to actually address the elements of the checklist, that's what, coupled with the checklist, actually led us to improve processes and outcomes. And so I think to say a checklist is an answer, as you say, may be too simple. I think it's a fantastic starting point. I think we need to be careful that we choose our checklist wisely, but I think there's some interesting additions work to be done about how to use them best. And I think Dr. Weiss and his group have really started us thinking about that. I'm very impressed with the idea of having someone standing next to you to remind you to do the right thing. That sounds like my mother. So uh, um, I I was also very, I think, one of the really good parts of the uh, series of articles that you guys put together was addressing the issue of cultural barriers to improvement in the ICU. And I, I you know, that uh, having been an ICU director for many years, that was always, I felt, the most difficult part, getting different groups, different personalities, people who may or may not have felt threatened by a particular improvement that the overall group was interested in how to get them pulling together. And uh, I wondered if you had any uh, thoughts on how to approach that or if these are skills that are not teachable. So uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. No, I think it's a very interesting question. I I think we all know that, as you describe, culture change and and trying to make change in a culture that maybe is not ready for it or or necessarily embracing of it at a time is always really hard. And I think all of us have worked in environments where that's more or less the case. And I I agree. I think that it's it's very difficult to do. We try, and I think maybe the best way I can answer the question is we tried in our sort of last bit of the series to talk a little bit about strategies that have been used to improve team communication and collaboration. I think in the ICU setting, we all know that there have been studies showing that good collaboration is beneficial for improving processes of care, but I, I think that collaboration again, studies suggest, is not always as great as we would like it to be. And there really are some strategies like coaching that actually Dr. Gawande comments upon in one of his pieces, professional coaching, to try to teach people how to be better team players, potentially. And then also team building exercises that are really done in a business setting almost routinely in environments where working together is necessary for for business success that I think really can help us sort of learn to work with one another better in any environment, but certainly in the ICU and with respect to change goals. I do also think, as we'd sort of talked about a little before, I completely agree with what you're saying, that people are often of divergent minds about what is an important priority initiative and if they're on board with the idea of working for change that their goals might be different about what that change should be. And so I think one of the best things we can try to do to improve that is to try to get all those divergent thoughts out in the open and being discussed as early as possible. I think it's not difficult to imagine that if people, no matter how junior they might be, are going to be expected to be involved and really champion any change process, if they have a say early on and and get to say, kind of why they think this is either a good or a bad idea and how it can be improved upon, I think our goal of getting them involved and really advocating for the change once the process is underway is really much improved. And so I I would guess the best answer I can give is I I don't know how to change culture overall, but I think that we do have some strategies to try to nudge us in a more change-friendly mindset. 
Well, I think you've given us a lot of wisdom and a lot to think about, and I I think the uh, series of articles, Management Strategies to Affect Change in the ICU, Lessons from the World of Business, is going to be very frequently read and I think uh, will become some of the best that has been done in this in this area. So, Haley, I want to thank you for sharing your time. Uh, I want to get you back to the ICU so you can affect all those changes. And once again, this is Dr. Alan Fine, podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society, wishing you all a good night and some good reading ahead.